Welcome to Practical Christian Living. But if we really can put self-seeking aside and live in meekness, which is, that was the passage last week, remember? He said, we need to live in meekness among each other. And the heart of meekness is servanthood. A servant is meek. And if you can put self-seeking aside and live in meekness and serve one another, then any conflict in your home can be fixed. The dictionary defines meek as having or showing a quiet and gentle nature, not wanting to fight or argue with people. In our last study in the book of James, James described the type of wisdom we need to have as meek children of God, always seeking peace. Today, we move ahead into James chapter 4, as we study what type of feelings and attitudes bring about the opposite of peace and meekness. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we thank you that we can study the Bible. We don't come in here to try to impress people with worldly wisdom or philosophy or or how with it we are, (laughs) because we're not. We just thank you that we can open up our Bible and hear what you have to say. We don't want it any other way. We just want to know you more. We want to love you more. We want to surrender and submit to you and and hear what it is that you have to say. We pray that these words in this passage would make a dent in our hearts and just stay there so that we would never be the people who who are spoken of in this passage in this negative way. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's very important to keep all passages in context, to remember what comes before and to kind of connect what you're reading now to what is is said after it. This passage, maybe more than most, we have a tendency to take chapter four, the first section, which says so much and disconnect it from the rest of the book of James as if it is standing all alone. And that's a mistake. Because you remember that, first of all, James is writing to a group of people that have been dispersed. When the church began, it began in Jerusalem. The very first pastor of the church in Jerusalem was the half-brother of Jesus, James. James is the one who wrote this book. When Paul began to persecute the church, the church fled from that persecution. It was as if the church had gone big. There was thousands of people in the church in Jerusalem. And then under the persecution of Paul, they fled to Turkey. They fled to Macedonia, which is Europe today. They fled to Syria. Uh, They fled to Egypt. They fled everywhere. And they took with them that very early mix of Judaism and Christianity. That whole thing hadn't been shaken out yet. It's been shaken out for us. Uh, We know the relation between Jews and Gentiles and the church and how we've all come under that umbrella of the church. We know how that works. They didn't. It was still very Jewish to them. And, And James writes to these churches that have been dispersed everywhere because there's problems. There's people in the church who want to be seen. They're self seeking, they have desires to have position. And so he writes and he says, and we saw this earlier, let not there be many teachers. Too many people running around trying to be teachers. Too many people trying to seek positions and to gain something for themselves. And that had caused 
confrontation in these churches. There can be confrontation in churches. I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> I don't know if that shocks you or not. But there can be confrontation in churches, and there's probably very few places, maybe the home, where it can be uglier. And churches that have confrontation have caused division. And there's people that are wounded by that confrontation and end up not being in church at all. And so he's talking about that confrontation. And he says, if you have worldly wisdom, which worldly wisdom is earthly, right? This is what he said last week in chapter three. He said, worldly wisdom is earthly, it is sensual, and it is demonic. Worldly wisdom says you can get ahead by seeking your own way. Worldly wisdom says you take the most ambitious person and you hire that person because that ambitious person is going to do good things for your company. That's worldly wisdom. And it is a formula that works in the world. That's why it's earthly, it's sensual, and it's demonic. But it doesn't work in the church. If you have a chance to put someone who's incredibly self-seeking and incredibly ambitious next to a person who says, you know what, I don't care what I gain out of it. I don't care what there is for me. I just want to serve. You always want to take the person who wants to serve and you want to put them in that place. Jesus rebuked the disciples by saying to them, if you want to be great in the kingdom, and they argued about it. They even sent their mommy to talk to Jesus about who would sit on the right and left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. And Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom? Then learn to be a servant to all. Well, that's the wisdom that is from above. And the wisdom that is from above is not self-seeking. The, the worldly wisdom is self-seeking. What can I gain? How is it that I can live my life in such a way that I can gain whatever I can gain? The worldly wisdom, it's demonic in the sense that it will step on anyone's neck to gain anything it can. When that enters the church, that's ugly. When someone says they shouldn't have that position, I should have that position. And I'm going to climb this ladder. I don't care who I have to step on to be able to climb that ladder. Well, this is happening in the early church, even as it happens in churches today. And so James is, James is not a flowery guy. James is a straight shooter. James says it as it is. This is the gospel of I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong. It is not, let me butter you up first and make you feel good. It is very hard hitting and it challenges us. And we want to make sure that as we approach, we have the wisdom that's from above. Look at verse 14 of chapter three. This was last week's study. But the wisdom that is from above, and remember the context is in conflict in the church. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. Pure in the sense that it's not what verse 14 says. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. The, the wisdom that is self-seeking and bitter envy. But pure wisdom is from above. And pure wisdom says, it's not about what I can get. It's not about me. Pure wisdom. It's not self-seeking. And then it's peaceable. That wisdom is just looking for peace. The church should be a place of peace because Jesus is the prince of peace. And it's gentle. And it's willing to yield. It's willing to yield to someone. It's willing to say, okay, well, your way. Not my way, your way. All right, let's do it your way. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Well, if we have that kind of wisdom, 
then there'll never be a conflict in our church. If we all walk around with that wisdom that is from above, then we'll never drive people away from Christ. We'll never have people in the church going, if this is what church is, I don't want to be a part of it. This is ugly. We won't have that. Now, I also would like to make an application before we go on in this topic, because he doesn't change topics. They do a good job for the most part of putting in the chapter breaks. Remember, when James wrote this, he didn't have a chapter break. And if I were putting the passages in, I wouldn't put a chapter break in between the end of three and the beginning of four. I would move it down a little bit further, at least to past verse seven. Maybe not at all. Maybe the whole book would be better without it. But we need to make an application, I think, to our homes. We do a lot of counseling at the church. We've got 12 pastors that are on staff and each of them have a counseling schedule. And the vast majority of our counseling schedule is in conflict resolution. That's mostly what we, we deal with. People coming in and their marriages are a mess and they have a lot of conflict. And we try to get them to figure out how to fight, the right way to fight. <laughs> and really, if you take verse, what verse was it, 17? Is that the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah 17. And you bring that into the home, then you don't have conflict anymore. That's conflict resolution. It's first pure. It's gentle. It's peaceable. It's willing to yield. And if we do those, we, we won't have conflict. I used to do marriage counseling. I don't do it anymore. I don't do any counseling anymore, but I used to do a lot of it. I had a couple that were in, and they were marriage counseling, which I did, I think, four or five. I did one on conflict resolution and um, just teaching, you know, what do you do when there's conflict? Because some people have a tendency to run away. Some people have a tendency to scream and chase the person down the road, which may be why the person's running away. So the person is screaming and chasing them. And they'll do that until their voice absolutely is gone, and then they'll still scream some more. They'll find another way to scream if they can't scream anymore because they've gone hoarse. So we talk about conflict resolution and how you handle it and, you know, not to do things out of anger and, you know, postpone things, but not forever. And I mean, just some, some just real practical stuff. And so I said to this couple, tell me about your first fight. And they looked at each other. They looked at me. We, we love each other. We don't fight. And I thought, oh boy. I said, you will. They, no, we won't. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it anyway just because you should know this stuff for someone else's marriage, not for your own. <laughs> but if we really can put self-seeking aside and live in meekness, which is, that was the passage last week, remember? He said, you need to live in meekness among each other. And the heart of meekness is servanthood. A servant is meek. And if you can put self-seeking aside and live in meekness, and serve one another, then any conflict in your home can be fixed. Any battle that you go through can be taken care of. If one person does it, it helps the situation at least 50%. If both people do it, it can't help but be successful within the church, within the home. And so now he's going to continue on. And he asks a question now. He's had this whole passage here about conflict, and, and how to deal with it and the wisdom that's from above compared to the worldly wisdom and how the churches are obviously full of this worldly wisdom and there's a lot of self-seeking going on, a lot of ambition going on. There's a lot of struggles that are taking place in the church. And so he asks the question now in verse one of chapter four, where do wars and fights come from among you? He says, what's the reason for this? Why do we have this conflict? Why do we have to talk about worldly wisdom and conflict and wisdom that comes from above and conflict? And then he gives the answer. He says, do they not come from your desire for pleasure 
that war in your members. He says you're self-seeking, the desire for pleasure. The word pleasure is the Greek word that we get the word hedonism from. Hedonism, we think, well, hedonism is just somebody living like a heathen, right? It's gone to live in sin. They're just, they're licentious. They do whatever they want to do. They're full of sin. They're full of, well, that's kind of, yeah, that's, that's the result of a hedonistic philosophy. But um, one of the students of Aristotle, Aristropolis, I think his name was, might be, might be right, might be wrong. But one of his students, a thinker like Aristotle, this is 400 years before the time of Christ, by the way, 400 years BC, came up with this idea that man should live for pleasure. I mean, what is there but pleasure? was his thinking. We should just live for pleasure. And if we just live for pleasure, and sexual pleasure is included in that thinking, but when you study hedonism, sexual pleasure is just a small fraction of what hedonism is about. So you can't pile that all into there. It's, it's about living for yourself. It's about being happy. It's about seeking happiness at all costs. It's about seeking your own pleasure. It's the concept in the 70s. Do you remember the book, I'm Okay, You're Okay? That's the idea. You seek for your own pleasure and I'll seek for my own pleasure and you'll be okay and I'll be okay. When in reality, they should have wrote a book called You're Not Okay and I'm Not Okay and this is the wrong way to live. That's what they should have wrote a book that was said. But the word comes from that. So maybe James is even, remember, hedonism is what destroyed the Greek empire and destroyed the Roman empire. Hedonism resulted in all kinds of disgusting practices that we won't even mention there were no boundaries or rules. We think of our society as a very progressive society. We think of our acceptance of people's sexual hungers as being progressive. The Greeks were way more progressive than us. The Romans were way more progressive than where we are today. I mean, way more. They had entire armies that were nothing but homosexual. We have the don't ask, don't tell. We call that progressive. They had armies. You couldn't be a part of this army if you weren't homosexual. That's progressive, folks. We aren't there yet. We might get there. We aren't there yet. That kind of a lifestyle is a result of this philosophy. So to think that James is using the word that is connected to the philosophy, uh, that's connected to a 400-year-old philosophy, and that he's not thinking of that philosophy is probably wrong. He's probably saying, listen, this hedonism is coming into the church. You guys are just living for your own pleasure. And that's why there's all these battles and these wars and these fights, because you guys are, are, are just out for yourself. You're just living for yourself. You're just living like the Greeks are living. You're living like the Romans are living. These things ought not to be done in the church. They ought not to be done in the name of God. He says, every battle and every war comes from your desire for pleasure that wars in your members. Why does a desire for pleasure war in your members? Because you are never going to get all you want. So if you, hey, I literally pounded the pulpit. I don't know, I'm not normally a pulpit pounder, but I pounded the pulpit. Kind of felt good. You don't normally get what you want. Next, I'll start pointing my finger. So we're frustrated. When you live for yourself, you live for your ambition, you live for your pleasure, because you don't get that, you end up going, I want it. You don't get it. And that is the fatal error in the philosophy of hedonism. Because you spend your whole life trying to gain something, but you can't gain it. 
It's out of your reach. And it wars in your members. And so James nails. It's like a debate with someone. And there's hedonists today, by the way, hedonist philosophies around today. It's like he's debating them and just right away just gets a, a punch right out of the chute. Bang, this finishes the argument. You want to live for it? Well, you can live for it, but it's going to warn your members. You're going to be a person that is always striving for something that you can't obtain and you can't achieve. And even when you try to achieve it and you gain it, it's gone. Because time is a funny thing. We're fully engaged in this moment, but we can never get that moment back again. I'm fully engaged in the moment right now, but what I just said is gone. I'll never get it back. So you're on this constant pursuit when, when you're living for pleasure, when you're living for the now, when you're living for what you can gain. It, and it wars in your members. It's just a complete and total battle that takes place. Well, no wonder you're fighting with everybody, trying to get what you can get. Your whole life, instead of being putting other people's interests above your own, you're putting your interests above everybody else's interest. It's the opposite of Philippians chapter two. This is happening in the church and, and, and James knows it. And so he says, no wonder there's war in your members, probably talking about them, but he also might be talking about the whole church. There's wars in the church and the members in the body because everybody's running around seeking their own interests instead of putting other people's interests above their own. He says, you lust and do not have. See, the, the emptiness. You lust. Again, don't, don't only think when we're talking about hedonism, only a small portion of that sexual. There's all kinds of other lust. There's lust for power, lust for fame, lust to be known, lust for recognition, and on and on. And you lust and you don't have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. There's a couple of different ideas here as to what he says about murder. I don't think they were murdering in their churches. I think he's saying, you'll step on the neck of anyone to get what you want. You'll murder anyone. You'll assassinate anyone's character. You're malicious. You're slanderous. You're willing to take any steps necessary to gain what you want for you. And I think that that statement for someone who's self-seeking is true. I think that is the root of murder. When someone ends up murdering someone, they're trying to gain something for themselves. So they murder them. You hear of a husband that murders his wife or a wife that murders her husband or if somebody that murders someone else in the family. You, you dig through the story and it comes to some kind of self-seeking or envy or jealousy. And so even though there might not be a murder, and remember, James is, is not only very familiar with the world that he lives in, which is a Greek culture and a Roman government, but he's also very familiar with the teachings of Jesus. Studying the Sermon on the Mount the same time we're studying the book of James is enlightening because James references the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over and over again. He knows it. Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you, when you are angry with your brother, you're murdering them in your heart. And so when James is talking about an argument where you're obviously getting angry and seeking your own way and destructive, murdering someone. So he's saying, you lust and you don't have, you murder and covet. You want what someone else has got and you murder, you're angry with them, you murder them. You're willing to step on their neck or their head or their face and anything you can to get what you want. The end result of that is that you don't have, right? He says, you lust, you do not have, you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, 
which again, it's complete and total frustration because no matter how much you're stepping on someone's head or neck or whatever to try to gain what you can gain for you, you don't get it. So now you want all those things. And then he says, you do not have because you don't ask. He already said in chapter one that every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights. Everything that you need for life and godliness, Peter says, comes from God. Real fulfillment and satisfaction comes from Jesus. The joy, the desires, if we abide in him and he abides in us, we'll ask whatever we desire and it will be given to us. The Old Testament says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Everything comes from him. And we don't have because we don't ask. David sinned with Bathsheba, right? Another guy's wife, adultery. And Nathan comes to him a year after the sin. He's killed Uriah and he's taken her in looking like the hero. Well, I'm going to take this pregnant woman into my harem. She'll be my wife and I'll raise his child as if it's, he's my child. He is his child. But as if she's my, he's my child. And Nathan comes to him and says, man had a bunch of goats, bunch of goats. And the man next door had a pet goat. And the man with the bunch of goats had a friend come over. Instead of killing one of his own goats that he had a bunch of, he went next door and got the guy's pet goat. And he killed that guy's single pet goat. David's enraged. That man shall surely die. Nathan says, you're that man. You see, David's whole sin is a picture of this whole thing. David looked at that woman taking a bath, and her name was Bathsheba. <laughs> and he takes her for himself, self-seeking, self-indulging. He didn't care that he had to murder Uriah later on to get what he wanted, to cover it up. He was willing to do whatever. See, he's fulfilling this whole thing. And then Nathan says to him, thus says the Lord, I have taken you out of obscurity and I have given you the kingdom. I have given you all your master's things, your master's family and your master's wives. And if it were not enough, I would have given you more. Isn't that amazing? God says, here you've done this thing where you've murdered and desired and wanted and you've lusted and you've sought your own way and I would give you everything you need. And I think God says that to all of us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. He says, I've given you everything and if it's not enough, I'll give you more. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. You say, well, I, I don't have that position. I don't have that power. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody's come to my Bible study. They haven't asked me to lead a Bible study. And I prayed, God, let me be a teacher. Let me be a, a leader. Let people in the church know who I am. Don't they know what they're missing, God? <laughs> right? You have not because you ask not, the end of verse 2, but then beginning of verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. Then you may spend it on your own pleasures. You're asking that, Instead of saying to God, whatever you want, use me. Let me be a servant. There's a prayer that'll get answered. Lord, show me where I can serve the people in the church that are your people. God, you got some children. They're hanging out down at the church I attend. How can I be a servant? Let me serve them, God. You think God's going to say no? No, God will let you do that. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.